Why they think it's heaven? This from every Where? Oh, yes. Listen, the time has come for scary things like monsters, ghosts, and vampire wings. Like horrible movies, all drippy and drooly. Horrible hosts like me, Robert M. Price, host of the Lovecraft Geek. The following prescribed is transcribed. Podcasting from the depths of the vaults of Yovambus, surrounded by many volumes of obscure and forgotten lore by Lovecraft, Robert E. Howard, Clark Ashton Smith, Edgar Rice Burroughs, Lynn Carter, Kenneth Robeson, Edmund Hamilton, Stephen King, and on and on I could go. Ah, yes, uh, what a... What a great company to be surrounded by. But we've got a great company of fellow Lovecraft geeks who have sent questions in. And as you may know, I've kind of been bouncing from one computer to another because of uh, damage and then getting them fixed and juggling the, the machines. So I'm only now getting to some questions that uh, were sent in Long ago, uh, probably before the uh, the filtering down of Cthulhu and Sathagwa from the stars. But the stars are right again, and so I want to uh, answer a few of them here. This from A.S. Braun of Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Says, I would submit my favorite HPL story as The Outsider, perhaps, uh, though it may not be quite as rich in content and mythology as his classics, I find that it is a great it has a great deal to offer as a short tale of terror. It not only models the uh, theme of isolation but also places there in its places itself there in its own rights since it does not uh, directly connect to his larger mythos. I love the purple prose in this tale, though later uh, H.P.L. chastised himself for this. I commend him for his homage to the decadence. Debatably, the story is one of few that have a, have a, handy, a happy ending. This is not to mention my love for such early works as The Tomb and The Olive Tree, Lovecraft's useful Lovecraft's youth, it's been a long day, Lovecraft's youthful fascination with the Greek pantheon reminds me of his commonality with Wolfgang von Goethe. Uh, you know, the, the, uh, the outsider uh, is great as it stands on its own, though there is almost a connection with some of the other ones once we get into that Egyptian stuff, like how the narrator is now hanging around in the rock tombs of Neb and and such. Uh, I uh, like it a lot, though I have to admit there's a little uh, ambiguity at the beginning uh, and uh, with the, the premise of it, who's been raising him there in what turns out to be a tomb and so forth. I guess it doesn't matter much. But um, the... Uh, the uh, ending, though it is uh, fascinating and striking, I kind of wish uh, he had gone uh, with the original ending where you would have shared the author, the, the narrator's shock as he comes up out of the great tunnel and finds that it isn't a tower, it is a tunnel, and he's just exited a, a deep... Uh, mausoleum and finds himself in a cemetery. He had first thought of just ending it right there, and if I remember correctly, about 20 years ago when I did all this this preparation, in my forthcoming Chaosium edition of uh, the fiction of Lovecraft, I believe that's where I cut it off uh, so that uh, people can experience the effect of that alternate variant version. But yeah, I, I got a huge kick out of that too. There should be more of those uh, Lovecraft tales, I think. Uh, let's see, I have two questions for you, good sir, A.S. Braun says. One, how do you think Lovecraft would react to the tremendous fame he has recently acquired? 
uh, I think the clue to that is in how he reacted to the fame he already had, uh, because he did have it, at least among the Weird Tales readers. I mean, he knew that was a nationally known magazine and that a lot of people liked his stuff. And uh, Mr. Modesty that, it, that he was, he tended to downplay it, and especially <laughs> even to, uh, to some degree insult the audience that liked him, a la the old joke, I wouldn't want to be a member of any club that would want anybody like me as a member. He, he referred to the Weird Tales readership <laughs> as yaps and nitwits. Uh, and uh, he bemoaned the, the fact, I don't know if it was, that uh, because of Farnsworth Wright's editorial requirements, he had prostituted himself and ruined his writing by uh, <laughs> condescending to appear in Weird Tales. That seems hard to believe for us who see uh, what he he wrote as, as he did, even at that. I mean, despite what I just said he said, uh, it's obvious from the remarks he makes in his letters to his friends that he saw his work and that of a few others as transcending the general rot that he, he saw in Weird Tales. I mean, I, you probably, like me, get a big kick out of even the corniest, silliest, cheesiest stuff in there. Um, I don't know that Lovecraft did. He couldn't admit it if he did. Um, but, uh, but even at that, I mean, even appreciating the stuff, of course, it's obvious that the Three Musketeers and others transcended it. So I, I take what he said about uh, Weird Tales being a reproach to his career rather than an enhancement of it. I take that with a grain of salt. I suspect uh, he would make some kind of remark, uh, whether he really meant it or not, that uh, it just shows how bad his work was that it could achieve popular acclaim. Woe unto you when all men speak well of you, for so they lauded the false prophets who were before you. I'm guessing he would say that. But on the other hand, I'm sure he would have been delighted, thrilled, and amazed and uh, would probably have uh, been good to his fans anyway, as he already was. Uh, again, you can you can really see in uh, his reaction to admirers, helping them with their fiction and so on, in his own day, his polite responses, gently disabusing people of, of their illusion that the Necronomicon was real. He he was uh, he was a, a good uh, famous person. Uh, with his fans, just as Robert Block was, and I'm guessing Block got the uh, the inspiration for that, as for so many things from his pal HBL. Uh, two, what would it take to become the next Lovecraft? Generally, fiction writers are passionate about their work, but it is unlikely any will ever achieve prestige through imitation. Uh, for what reason will we be celebrating the next great horror fiction revolutionary? Well, uh, you raise a really interesting question. Can anybody really achieve fame or deserve fame for being an imitator? Everybody knows of Arthur Conan Doyle and Sherlock Holmes. How many people know of uh, August Erleth and Solar Ponds or Basil Copper and Solar Ponds, right? Uh, the further you get from the original, the uh, the less and less credit someone gets. Uh, an, an imitator usually starts to become better known and more widely appreciated when he or she finishes cutting his or her teeth or fangs on the work of the one they imitate and branch out into new directions. Ramsey Campbell, Brian Lumley, Robert Block, uh, many instances of that even within our own uh, sub-universe. Having said that, the and uh, the same thing would be true of the sword and sorcery stuff. There's the inimitable Robert E. Howard and his Conan tales, and then there are generations of uh, competitors and imitators. Um, Henry Kuttner and Elac of Atlantis, and though that's great stuff in its own right, 
Um, and then in later generations, Brack the Barbarian by John Jakes, who, however, went on to get fame for the series of historical novels, The Bastard, and so on. Uh, Chuck Hoffman, my pal, used to say, what are the, the rest of the titles? I forget, the, the Son of a Bitch, and so on. And so on. Anyway, um, and uh, Block, of course, went on to do the psychological mystery and detective uh, stories, uh, science fiction and all of that, though no one can ever convince me that even the earliest of his Lovecraftian pastiches are not uh, excellent work as well. I love them all. Uh, Ramsey Campbell, Brian Lumley, again, uh, they really became famous, uh, I mean, in their own right, in a major way, once they spun out of the Lovecraft orbit a bit, but his influence is still apparent, even in the later works. There are others today who uh, I suppose might be considered next Lovecrafts, more than one, who have, uh, who you can tell they're big Lovecraft fans, but they've added other things into their witch's brew and certainly established their own styles right out of the box. Joe Pulver, Mike Sisko, Tom Ligotti, um, uh, Cody Goodfellow, Laird Barron, and so many others that are really terrific writers. Uh, Mark Rainey, I, I could just go on and on. Uh, and uh, I, it's, I hope no one is offended that I leave out their favorite because I'd be here all night. Uh, you, you can fill in the blank. Uh, these uh, folks have, uh, I think, been aided in the resources they can bring to bear in their own writing and in having a ready readership because of Lovecraft and the Weird Tales crew. If you mean, will there be somebody who so revolutionized horror writing as Lovecraft did and and how much of a departure would that take? I'm willing to say that... Uh, some of the people I've uh, listed may have done that. Their styles and visions are so radical. And keep in mind, Lovecraft uh, did not write in a vacuum. Uh, I've said before that uh, the Dunwich Horror can be uh, broken down into ideas and materials uh, from, uh, from Arthur Mackin especially, but from several others, Almost to the same degree, The Shuttered Room by August Erleth can be broken down into various bits and pieces of Lovecraft. But Lovecraft made it all distinctly his own. You, Even if you've just read all that Mackin stuff and you go on to read The Dunwich Horror, you're reading something that is powerful in its own right. So it's tough to know what exactly you have to do, what changes you have to ring. But uh, there are already people doing the same sort of thing Lovecraft did, the alchemy, using, preserving, but transforming his sources. And we're very lucky to, to live in such a time. Well, I mean, there's way too much. I just turned 60 years old. I'm looking forward to one day being able to just sit here in the vaults of Yovambus and... Uh, reading all the great, great uh, paperbacks and Arkham Houses and such that I read back when I was in junior high. Uh, and uh, whenever I have reread it, I've been amazed at how well it holds up. And, uh, uh, and, and of course, I have uh, stacks of books by more recent authors. You know, I, I don't know if I'm ever going to have time to read all of it. Uh, so uh, it's amazing that uh, already... There's been such a, well, several breaking waves of uh, revolutionary horror fiction. Oh, boy, it's great. Uh, so, the original Lovecraft, his antecedents, and those who follow. I don't mind bathing in that lake. Mm, John Felix, who's integral to the production of this uh, this uh, wonderful podcast, that I thought I'd mention, per your request on the podcast, that my favorite HBL story so far is The Shadow Out of Time, followed by The Dream Quest of Unknown Kadath. My choices stem from A, my limited unfamiliarity with the works of HPL, and my choice of favorite mythos work. Uh, let's see. 
that uh, latter work happens to be the book that introduced, I guess, uh, Kadath, that introduced me to him and the mythos in general, albeit from a disdainful uh, point of view, probably when I was a senior in high school. My friend's brother had a paperback of Colin Wilson's The Philosopher's Stone, not his cup of tea, so I started reading the introductory materials and caught the word existentialism. Uh, reading, uh, yeah, uh, having just read The Stranger by Albert Camus for an accelerated English college credit class, I quickly read just about every book by Wilson I could get my hands on, apparently a frequent occurrence among nerdy types like I was or am, but based on Wilson's tongue-in-cheek characterization of Lovecraft's work, I felt no desire to look into HPL's corpus. What kept him in the back of my mind, however, was the lost civilizations and ancient astronauts' angles of these stories. Yeah, once uh, Lovecraft takes root sooner or later, he blossoms into uh, unwholesome uh, growths like we see in uh, the color out of space. Um, Gus from Phoenix, Arizona. I'm curious to hear your thoughts on the Mythos Con. Compared to other Lovecraftian-related cons and gatherings in which you have partaken, how did Mythos Con stack up? Was it considered a success by the organizers? Which of the Lovecraft cons that you've attended would you consider your favorite? Um... And uh, in the absence of Adam Nicewander, is there any hope of a second Mythos Con occurring? The website indicates one, but it seems likely it has not been attended to recently. Well, Gus, I, I thoroughly enjoyed it. Uh, I loved seeing and talking to all of these great people, m many of whom I hadn't seen in a long time, Jason Eckhart, Peter Cannon, uh, others I don't see often enough, though a bit more than that, like S.T. Joshi and... Uh, oh, boy, it was great. Um, I was sorry Brian Lumley couldn't get there, but delighted that Ramsey Campbell did. And uh, Oh, boy, what fun this thing was. I believe Willem Pugmire said it was the greatest uh, Lovecraft event he had ever been to, and I can sure see that. I mean, there's nothing bad about it, no failing, no lack. It was just a delight. Uh, I just completely uh, loved it. And I believe the organizers thought it uh, went real well. As to the Lovecraft cons I attended, which would you consider your favorite? I've I've enjoyed almost all of them. I think that perhaps the one I loved the best was the second Necronomicon in uh, 95. And that has a lot to do with the Cthulhu prayer breakfast. I thought that went so amazingly well that that dominates everything else in my mind, but that's not really a fair criterion. Uh, I've really loved all of them, and I don't, uh, if I thought about it a bit more, I could distinguish them. They don't all just fade into one huge blur, but uh, I've, I can't say that, that uh, one stands out over the others because they were all so terrific. And I'm throwing here in here the Mythoscon, the Necronomicons, and the Lovecraft Film Festivals. They're just terrific. The first one of those I attended, I can't think of the year, was enormously fun as well, but they're all terrific. Um, one, oh, uh, next to last one I went to, I was sick the whole time from allergies, so that one didn't go so great for me, but that's no way to evaluate it. But I love them all. Uh, they're just terrific, and I love the people who put them on and the people I meet there. I really feel that these folks are my flock and my friends, and uh, it's just always a great experience. Is there going to be a second Mythos Con? Well, like you, I've heard that, yeah, they plan on doing it, but I'd be surprised if they did uh, after all this time. However, I want to send out positive vibes. I sure hope they do. But if they don't, the one they did will uh, go down in history. Uh, I guess it will anyway. But uh, that was so great. It not only would be a hard act to follow, but if nobody tried, you couldn't blame them. It was just terrific. Yeah, thanks, Gus. 
Mm, let me see. Uh, Nico says one that is, I guess he's the pharaoh that plundered Jerusalem, or maybe named after him, but you never know. These long-lived Lovecraftian people. Uh, one story that's often included in the can- canonical collections of Lovecraft's work is the co-written story in the Wall of Eryx. That's how you say it. Uh, which I enjoyed as a kid, but I now realize has a deep logical flaw in the description of the walls of the maze. I'm not even clear how much of the story Lovecraft actually wrote either. Uh, That's you and me both. I can't help thinking that that Lovecraft just tidied up some of what uh, Kenneth Sterling wrote, or if Sterling just gave him an outline, it was not that imaginative, and Lovecraft stuck pretty close to it, giving us a kind of, eh, story. Um, However, I'm already uh, wandering here. Uh, Nico goes on to say, Though flawed logically, I do like the story, but in some ways it seems un-Lovecraft. Amen. It's unusual as a critique, I think, of colonial uh, colonialism, yeah, and also of the John Carter of Mars books, which are sort of alluded to in the inventory of equipment the main character wishes he had, and also in the completely hopeless fate of the main character. Um, yeah, I, uh, I think it's a shame that Lovecraft uh, in later years criticized Burroughs for his... Uh, anthropomorphic aliens and all of that and uh, though he he loved Burroughs earlier I think that uh, the notion of humanoid aliens is not a a ridiculous cheap shortcut because if you have an earth-like planet it, it would be no surprise that with the similar conditions evolution would proceed roughly the same way So I just don't see much of a problem with that. And if you posited utterly alien life forms, as Lovecraft wants us to do, keep in mind what he's trying to get across there, that uh, that it shows a universe in which humans scarcely fit. And if you're going to do that, that severely limits your narrative possibilities. Uh, at least uh, in A Princess of Mars, you you have uh, possible interactions between rivals and lovers and enemies and allies. Good luck doing we- that with a phosphorescent purple gas in space. So there, there's different reasons for that. Uh, and uh, it's, uh, it's true, though, that he criticized uh, Burroughs, unfortunately. I love them both. Uh, how much of, the, again, Nico, how much of the collaborations and ghost writings are Lovecrafts, and which of them, if any, you measure up to worthwhile reading in your estimation? Well, the ones that are in the uh, the Horror in the Museum collection, I think most of those are um, worthy of Lovecraft's canon, though even there, there's a kind of a light-hearted touch that uh, writing under his revision client's name, he felt a little more liberty to be a real pulp writer of the kind he derided. Uh, And uh, like, for instance, in um, The Horror in the Museum, this guy has gone out to the odd corners of the earth to bag genuine living monsters and aliens, including Cthulhu, who's on display in the museum. Uh, what the heck? I mean, Lovecraft would never write such a thing under his own name. Uh, w- like with Cthulhu, how he treats him, that's, uh, you know, in The Call of Cthulhu, this is almost a parody of The Call of Cthulhu. But most of it's straight-faced, and it's a lot of fun. Uh, The uh, one I always associate with it, I guess because it takes place in a museum too, is Out of the Eons, uh, where uh, you've got a lot more of the Lovecraftian cosmic background and the detail and all that, though there's still some some, uh, silliness here and there and some extravagance. But so what? 
And uh, the uh, short, well, okay, so so sometimes they're more lighthearted. He had his own secondary mythos that he plugged in there, not so much uh, Cthulhu and Yogg-Sothoth as Gatanathoa and Rantegoth, that kind of thing. But he moved some of the items he created there into his own acknowledged stories, like Shubnagurath and Father Yig and all that stuff. The most, the more famous ones, like the Curse of Yig, um, Horror in the Museum, Out of the Eons, Winged Death, The Mound, and so forth. Lovecraft virtually wrote the whole thing. Uh, early rumors to the contrary. Some people thought Frank Long contributed some to The Mound. He didn't. I don't know where that misunderstanding came from. Uh, Lovecraft said in his letters that he told how much of a plot germ or or just let's say premise germ that Hazel healed and uh, and the others would give him to work on, uh, and uh, it was virtually nothing. Uh, and uh, uh, with Adolf De Castro, that was different. De Castro had actually written the whole story uh, with the. Uh, the automa- uh, what is it? Clarendon's last test, aka the last test, aka the automatic executioner, aka the electric executioner, and uh, um, well, just for example, uh, and there's another one too. Uh, uh, he, oh, I'm sorry, that's that's uh, that's both of them there. Sorry, the executioner ones are separate ones. You can still read what De Castro wrote, and it's much, much different. Lovecraft completely rewrote the stories. In uh, the diary of Alonzo Typer, we have the draft that his friend William Lumley wrote, and it ain't bad. And Lovecraft kept some of it and added quite a bit, but it's already pretty good. And yet it is a genuine collaboration. You've got extensive prose by both writers. One of the interesting new features of my annotated Lovecraft set from Chaosium is that when it comes to stuff like the Ciametti uh, revisions, uh, Ashes, Deaf, Dumb, and Blind, The Love Dead, and so forth, I submitted these stories together with samples of Lovecraft's writing by himself and Ciametti's writing by itself to Andrew Q. Morton, who uh, has done extensive work on authorship identification in documents by computer analysis of of uh, vocabulary statistics and writing patterns and all that, what's called the cumulative sum technique, uh, which is used in Britain, where he hailed from, to determine forgery and forced confessions, faked wills and stuff like that. And uh, and so uh, I asked him to go over the stuff, and he did. And he says you can pretty well tell what Lovecraft wrote and what Eddie wrote. So you'll enjoy seeing that, I'm pretty sure, in my Chaosium edition. Um, so he did it differently with different revision clients. There's a huge debate over how much of a role he had in Dwayne Rimmel's work. Uh, I think he seriously rewrote some uh, of the material, like I think he wrote most of The Tree on the Hill, and uh, I'm not so sure anymore about um, the disinterment. That reads to me like Lovecraft may have written most of it, but Rimmel remembered, albeit a little vaguely, that he did give Lovecraft a draft, and uh, I'm guessing it was he was just already very influenced by Lovecraft and was able to mimic the feel and the logic of a Lovecraft story and then Lovecraft polished it up but it's hard to say no draft survives uh, the fam- most famous case perhaps is the Night Ocean his collaboration with Barlow and uh, S.T. and others at first thought that this was almost entirely ghost written by Lovecraft but it turned out that it was not, that he just, again, polished it up here and there, but that Lovecraft liked it very much because it already had the the kind of mood and vision Lovecraft had, just as 
When Lovecraft read The White Ship by Lord Dunsany, he had not started writing... You know, what am I saying here? I got the wrong thing. Uh, well, I'm mixing this up. He had written his first so-called Dunsanian story before he ever read Dunsany. But then when he did, he said, oh, man, this is my kind of thing, and then began to consciously emulate him. Oh, the same thing seems to have happened here. Uh, uh, Barlow was already writing in a Lovecraftian vein, so Lovecraft didn't have much to do with it. So it's different with each of the contributors, and it's interesting to see uh, the result of a uh, collaboration, a hybrid, you might say. Great stuff in any event. Okay, uh, thanks a heap, Nico. This from Ali. What comics were you reading as a lad? I would guess perhaps Marvel's Conan, but maybe you were a steady fan of some more obscure titles. Uh, and I'd love to see pictures of your Blue Beetle custom you uh, received. I'm a huge Blue Beetle fan. Oh, yeah, I think you're probably referring... This, as I say, is an old bunch of questions. Uh, uh, which one would I have mentioned? Because I've got a uh, Dan Garrett with two T's. Blue Beetle is mainly blue with some red on it from a long time ago. That's probably not the one I mentioned. I have one uh, done by Franz Bachmeier in California, a terrific customizer, who did Dan Garrett with one T, the Golden Age Blue Beetle, with the scale male uh, armor, sort of a blue suit, and a gold uh, gold goggles uh, belt and and uh, and gloves. I'll have to take a picture of that and post it. Yeah, it's really terrific. Yeah. Anyway, what comics uh, did I read? I was a devout fan of the Archie comics, Jughead, Life with Archie, Pep, Betty and Veronica, all stuff. Loved that. Little Archie, boy, those were great. I loved the Harvey comics, uh, Casper, Richie Rich, Hot Stuff, Wendy, Lotta, all that stuff. I, I loved them. I, at one point, was dating the daughter of Warren Kremer, who uh, wrote, who drew most of those, and he drew a picture of Casper in my high school yearbook. Boy, I cherish that. Uh, so I love those. They're terrific. Naturally, I like the the uh, supernaturalism, but I love the, the silliness of it, too. But early on, I was already re back in, I guess, 1960. I uh, was a big fan of Superman, Batman, you know, the DC heroes. A few years later... Um, I kind of converted to Marvel and read those devoutly. As soon as they came out, uh, uh, Spider-Man, the Hulk, uh, I think the first issue of the FF I read was uh, number 11. It was the one where they meet the impossible man. Uh, so I got in on Marvel pretty darn early, and uh, I've always loved them. And uh, I read, I've, I've uh, read pretty much all the superheroes of all of the comics companies and uh, I'm ecumenical I love them equally I don't know if I even have a favorite uh, bunch of characters though my top two heroes are Superman and Spider-Man but uh, I, I eventually read uh, was I, uh, there was no presence of EC Comics anymore when I started uh, reading them but I've uh, loved the reprints of those and many other pre-code horror comics since first real horror comics I read were Creepy and Eerie, which I just loved through the first dozen or so issues of each. Just terrific stuff. Okay. Um, uh, P.S. My favorite story, Rats in the Walls. And uh, this is, yeah, also from Molly. I have about ten of your mythos anthologies and have enjoyed them and your criticism, I was wondering what would be your own top five or ten favorite stories. Now, aside from Lovecraft's own work, that uh, seems to me the easiest way of dealing with this, I would say Block's uh, The Fane of the Black Pharaoh and The Faceless God, uh, Ramsey Campbell's The Inhabitant of the Lake and The Plain of Sound, uh, Derleth's The Lurker at the Threshold, 
uh, Howard's Dig Me No Grave and the Black Stone, Long's The Hounds of Tindalos, uh, let's see, uh, Smith's The Nameless Offspring, uh, Lynn Carter's The Winfield Heritance, Laird Barron's The Imago Sequence, and uh, Ted Klein's The Events at Poroth Farm. I could add many, many more to the list, but I guess those would be my favorites. This from Strange Ian. Great, great little pun there, right? Eon, Ian. Okay, Ian, uh, why do you suppose that Lovecraft's stories age better than Clark Ashton Smith's? I enjoy the work of both, and Smith is vastly superior in terms of the incredible vividness of the images that he is able to depict, whereas Lovecraft, at his best, relies on a slow build-up of suspense via subtle or not-so-subtle hints, rather than the more visual style of Smith. So why in this visual age do you think Lovecraft survived better than Smith? Not that I'm complaining. I, too, find myself returning to Lovecraft's tales more often than Smith's. Well, possibly because Lovecraft's work has been more consistently available. Um, it, it, another one, I, I somehow think this sounds kind of stupid to say, but I think it's so. People may still be put off by love by a smith's vocabulary which is certainly much stranger than lovecraft's i mean there lovecraft is more florid often or at least the purple prose but you don't have to have the dictionary at hand to look up all of the words and i'm not sure you would even find many of smith's uh, strange uh, words in there but it's hard to say i i mean uh where would you rank Howard? Uh, because Conan remains phenomenally pop popular, but of course uh, the original Conan work of Howard has been uh, swamped and devoured by this ocean of pastiche work. Uh, without reflecting on uh, the quality of the subsequent Conan pastiches, most of which I've never read, so, you know, I'm not criticizing at all. I'm not bemoaning it at all. I'm sure a lot of it's terrific. Paul Anderson, Carl Edward Wagner, a lot of great writers have been in on that. Uh, I almost, I, let me say, I'm just not interested once you get past uh, the uh, Bantam collection, Conan the Swordsman, which still has some stuff by Lynn Carter, Sprague de Camp, and Bjorn Nieberg. Uh, and uh, I, I kind of like them as the outer circle, like the first uh, Lovecraft circle level of the uh, the extension of Lovecraft's own mythos. I, I like all those guys. And uh, but there's so much of it, so uh, I, so it's difficult to gauge. I mean, Lovecraft, yeah, a huge bunch of uh, imitators, good in their own right. But Lovecraft is e more easily distinguished from them than I think in the popular mind and what we're talking about is popular esteem than Lovecraft is I'm sorry than uh, than uh, uh, Howard is and I don't know which one to compare Smith to uh, there have always been a steady stream of Smith admirers and imitators doing some pretty darn good imitations some not so good what do you expect uh, but um, maybe it's just a uh, an acquired taste or uh Maybe you have to have a more refined palate. Uh, do more people like Tolkien than Dunsany? Uh, maybe the same sort of thing. It's it's tough to tell. I certainly love Smith, though I have to admit uh, he's one rung lower than uh, the great uh, twosome Lovecraft and Howard to me. I admit the utter subjectivity of all this. David Hayden says, uh, Most intellectuals look at their own time and believe the world is going to hell in a handbasket. These people are usually strongly aided in their belief by a media that relentlessly focuses on and accentuates the negative. Lovecraft, an avid newspaper reader, seems to be no exception to this rule. 
worse, he was also mired in that particularly virulent civilization is doomed pessimism of the early to mid-1930s. Yet, those taking the longer history perspective can show that most such worries are just plain wrong. On all kinds of measures, things have generally been getting provably better every year since about 1858, if not before. Uh, see Matt Ridley's The Rational Optimist, etc. Uh, see, what would you say to Lovecraft in his later years to try to cheer the old gent up a bit? Well, uh, seeing as how he kind of liked Hitler, uh, I'd say, you know, you, you're betting on the wrong horse there. Things may be getting worse than you think. I I think his fear of European rationalism being swamped by the irrationalities of of the non-Western world is coming to pass before our eyes. I don't know that he could have anticipated anything like the Islamic caliphate on the move today. Um, there's, There's all sorts of stuff he would have hated, but it is cyclical, so I think I'd have to say that. You know, you don't be so... Well, I guess he knew that things had been worse and and had gotten better and very likely would do both again. Uh, if he was down in the dumps, I guess I'd have pointed that out. Uh, but uh, I don't know if I'd have needed to because it, it must have been apparent to him. Um, but uh, my view, I suppose, would be that he should keep up his stoicism in the capital S sense that you may not be able to change the way things are externally, but you can govern your reactions to them. And uh, when one of his friends, seeing him for the last time in the hospital, said, remember the ancient philosophers. And, of course, he's thinking of uh, facing suffering stoically. And uh, that was that was very good counseling. I don't know if I could improve on that. Mm-hmm. Rick Lye fellow author. You've been involved in some wonderful round robins over the years, such as Herbert West Reanimated, Herbert West Reincarnated, and Night Gauntlet. All of these appeared in magazines that aren't easy for new readers to track down. Have you ever thought of collecting them in an anthology? You could even include the original round robin version of Saucers from Yadav. Now, I have a story based on my initial segment of this, which was a Providence Pals round robin around 1981 or 82. I took it in my own direction because I didn't care for the direction that the other authors took it, though what, like, Jason Eckhart took it in a humorous direction and it was side-splittingly funny. I loved it, but I thought it would be worth uh, finishing it up in the way I had kind of envisioned, so I did that too, and that version appears in my collection, Blasphemies and Revelations. Uh, I think, Rick, this is a, a good idea, and uh, of course we ought to uh, do the, uh, we would have to include the one you and I recently uh, contributed to, and uh, there's uh, another one I know I'm in, I don't know when it's coming out, but this is complicated a bit because Pete Rollick is putting out an, some kind of like ultimate Herbert West uh, compilation, which would have uh, the uh, Herbert West reanimated and Herbert West reincarnated. So that kind of takes a bite out of it. But uh, I don't know. Uh, there, uh, those did predate by some years. The uh, the Herbert West ones did uh, predate the these more recent ones, and there are a few of them. I think that would be a pretty interesting project for somebody to do, and maybe eventually I'll get around to it. Uh, yeah, thanks for the notion. Um, let's see, J.C. Drake. In the name of Yog Sothoth, I humbly submit the following. First off, I discovered HBO when I was about five years old. Yeah, that was probably too young. My grandpa had a collection of horror fiction, and he didn't seem to mind reading it to very small children. My first story was The Lurking Fear, but my true favorite, and the one I've read about a million times, is Shadow Over Innsmouth. 
In fact, I'd happily move to Innsmouth if real estate becomes available. It's quiet, and I hear the locals keep to themselves. Uh, you had also, of course, you know, there is a Dunwich, but it's pretty much submerged, which I guess makes it kind of like Innsmouth. Anyway, you had also asked for our favorite mythos tale, and for me that is Ted Klein's, or T.E.D. Klein's, Black Man with a Horn. It's one of the few stories in the genre that captures H.P.L.'s atmosphere, really the point he was trying to achieve. I would suggest Klein to anyone who's a fan of Lovecraft. Amen to that, yeah. I just love Klein's work. H.P.L. for me fits into a holy trinity of writers, Lovecraft, Arthur Conan Doyle, and John Le Carre. I've based my career on an admixture of Dr. Henry Armitage, Sherlock Holmes, and George Smiley. You know, that uh, that kind of is a, it kind of backs up my contention that I guess I got from James Fowler, actually, that the meaning in our lives is narrative rather than conceptual in nature, that we are choosing a story to live out. Uh, and uh, and we choose to be a particular kind of character in that story. And uh, I, I uh, sympathize very much with that. Anyway, uh, J.C. says, uh, And speaking of the Trinity, on to my question. I've heard you speak a bit about the Dunwich horror as Lovecraft's riff on the Christ narrative. Could you expound on that a bit? I find the concept fascinating. It adds yet another layer of depth to an already amazing tale. Well, here I'm derivative from uh, the great Don Burleson, and someone else who wrote an essay on this, uh, I cannot think of his name, but um, the case is pretty clear. You've got... uh, miraculous conception, I guess a virginal conception story of Wilbur Whateley. Uh, Lavinia Whateley is impregnated by Yod sothoth uh, uh, rather than the Holy Spirit, but, uh, but it's obviously a kind of a parody. And uh, so you have a kind of divine and human hybrid who is born with a messianic calling to uh, bring an end to this world and uh, bring in the kingdom of God, uh, though it's uh, in the uh, case of the Dunwich Horror, humanity itself is the uh, the infestation, not demons, not Romans, etc. And the kingdom of God is the kingdom of the old ones, an unseen cosmic order that should rule, but for some reason does not. In the New Testament, Satan and the demons are ruling this world, though they didn't from creation and will not once God moves decisively through his agent, the Messiah. Uh, And uh, what happens? uh, Well, there's wunderkind, child prodigy stories about the divine... uh, child and he is eventually in pursuit of his mission killed and the and and as Burleson notes he is in effect resurrected because the uh his last words are the incant bug shagog etc are an incantation to set free the invisible twin brother who then takes Wilbur's place, right? It's, uh, there, th- there are two characters sharing a single actantial role, uh, the same narrative function. It's, it is, I think Burleson is right, that essentially, functionally, uh, the, the Dunwich horror per se is the resurrected Wilbur especially since it's one right after the other. And when he bursts out of the uh, the farmhouse, it's like uh, the empty tomb. And then what happens? He goes up t- to the top of a hill, and uh, which simultaneously parodies Golgotha, and uh, where uh, Jesus cries out, my uh, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And the Dunwich Horror cries out, Father, in a thunder-croaking voice. And then he's gone and uh, broken up into the elements that uh, composed him. This is like the crucifixion 
uh, and the ascension at the same time, which may sound like a stretch of an argument, but it is not. The Gospel of John already combines the crucifixion and the assumption, the ascension, uh, being lifted up. There's a very definite um, dialectical combination there, and uh, I think that's uh, that's kind of what Lovecraft has though I doubt if he was a huge student of the Gospel of John, he's come up with the same idea. And, uh, of course, the Necronomicon, uh, the scriptures that uh, show uh, the messianic task that Wilbur is supposed to pursue, just like Jesus is a student of the scriptures and so on. So I think it's a uh, well-found... Oh, yeah, one other thing. This notion that well, no, this is actually in The Call of Cthulhu, but it shows the same sort of a thing. He mentions theosophists disturbed by these dreams that Cthulhu has sent from Relier, donning white sheets or robes and awaiting the apocalypse on the hilltop. Whether this actually happened or not is uncertain, but during the Millerite scare in the 1850s, I think, when... Uh, William Miller had uh, predicted the date of the second coming of Christ. Supposedly, that's what a bunch of the Millerites or Adventists did, and Lovecraft is clearly parodying that, uh, the second coming, Cthulhu's second coming and all of that. So I think he had this sort of thing in mind. and uh, Or I would say that uh, in The Color Out of Space, what you have is a kind of a parody on the Sodom and Gomorrah story. I've written an article about that, and it's about to be reprinted in uh, the uh, this uh, British uh, art... Uh, what is it called? I uh, can't think of it now. They're doing horror comics reprints, too, but Pete Von Schale has done stunning color paintings in all of these... Uh, these volumes focusing on a single Lovecraft story with great illustrations and expository uh, articles by various windbags like me, and it, it's reprinted in there. That one will also appear in my uh, Chaosium Lovecraft series. So, yeah, I think there is definitely that uh, sort of parody in there. Well, um, I guess that's it for today. I still have a pretty full slime bucket of more recent questions, and I'll uh, do some of those the next time, but at least for some of you, I've finally gotten to your questions. Of course, it's a question of whether any of you remember sending them at this late date, or if you're still alive to hear the answers, but uh, at least I've sort of fulfilled my obligation. I'll see you next time on the next exciting installment of The Lovecraft Geek. The Lovecraft Geek was recorded by Robert M. Price and produced by John Felix. Catch up with Mike Davis and Mythos Communities Everywhere by devouring the free online Lovecraft e-zine at lovecraftzine.com for events, news, and information. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to The Lovecraft Geek on iTunes. To catch up with Dr. Price's projects, purchase merchandise, and donate to help support Dr. Price and his family, please visit robertmprice.mindvendor.com. Thanks for listening to The Lovecraft Geek. I'm Torin Atkinson.